City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to City Church. Thank you, Megan. Uh, today we are... Um, finishing a series on the Father, and specifically we've been talking about the Father's love, so not just um, one of the titles of God, but specifically the characteristic, or more like the identity of who God is, which is his love, and so we've talked about um, the Father and his protecting love, his provisional love, and uh, in my opinion, I think I saved the best for last. Today we're talking about the Father's sacrificial love, and the way that he has sacrificed for us, and how that actually is the definition of love. Um, before we jump into that, really quick, especially if you are a part of this church uh, regularly, uh, a little bit about what's coming up. First of all, and I said this last week, but um, right after today, uh, Catherine and I are leaving for two weeks, and um, so I want to give you a heads up for the next two weeks. We won't be here, but for the month of July, uh, our staff and um, our staff are going to be preaching through the book of James, and I am really excited for this couple reasons I'm really excited. One, I'm really excited to, uh, I do this every year, to get away, but also I'm really excited to come back and to sit under their teaching for the month of July, and I've heard a little bit about where they're going with this and um, the themes they want to pull out of the book of James, which is an incredible book anyway, and it's going to be really, really good, Um, but I wanted to tell you guys, we won't be here for the next two weeks, which um, should be fine. Uh, We do this every uh, year. And it is such a good rhythm. Uh, It's such a good rhythm because the reason um, that Catherine and I have chosen to try to do this every year, even in the midst of church planting, is because our intention and my intention is to make it for the long haul. And uh, we can cite all kinds of stories of um, guys and girls that didn't make it in ministry. And so I really want to be a pastor for the next 25 years, not just the next two. And so there's a handful of rhythms, be it daily, weekly, or annually, that I try to lean into um, so that my heart is still fresh and zealous for the Lord. And so I'm saying that because one, uh, as I even said it last week, I've gotten a lot of really cool texts or encouraging words because I also acknowledge I feel a little insecure about this. Um, I came from the corporate world and a lot of times I'm like, well, man, they don't get to do that. So why should I, or not everyone can take two weeks off in a row. And if I'm honest, I feel really insecure about that, and a lot of the encouragement that I've gotten in the last couple weeks, even as just mentioning it last week, has been really, really good. So thank you for, um, I feel like you guys care for um, my health and my spiritual vitality more than you care for making sure that I'm just here every week, and um, this rhythm means a lot to me, and I I want to keep doing this job. I want to be the pastor of City Church, I think, for 25 more years not just two, and I think this is a big way for it. So anyway, I wanted to say thank you and give you a heads up. If you're here next week and I'm not, it's like, what do we pay this guy for? I will be back, I promise. Um, And our staff are going to really guide us through the book of James well. So um, with that said, let's jump in. We have so much to cover today. We're going to go out with a bang and or you're going to be super pumped to hear from somebody else next week. A lot of scripture First, we're going to start with probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. Put up John 3, 16. There he is. 
Jesus made this verse famous, but Tim Tebow is shortly behind him. Um, Put up the real John 3.16. We're going to start here, and actually I'm just going to start with the first two words. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That first uh, two words that I want to break down right now really quick is for God. And and if you've been around here for a while, I hope that um, we've learned this. The Bible was not written in English, right? Jesus was not blonde. He did not look like me. So the Bible was written in a different language. Specifically, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so when it says for God, that word there is theos. Theos. And theos is just a title. It's not a name. It means God or gods. And uh, when it says for God, oftentimes what that's assuming is there's a belief in a God. And so if we're looking at culture today, be it uh, Eastern, Western Hemisphere, wherever you want to go, atheism or the belief in God or the lack of belief in God is probably not our big problem. Atheism is not the big issue that we're having today, specifically in the West. The issue that we're having and the the thing I talk a lot about is not atheism, but secularism. And secularism in layman's term is this, uh, a little bit of God mixed with a little bit of culture. And I love that truth about what Jesus said. I don't like that one. I love that verse. That verse is so encouraging. That verse, that chapter is outdated. And so secularism or secular humanism is coming under the guise that God should be reasonable more than he should be divine. And so as a church, and one of my not-so-secret tasks that I've given myself is I want to dismantle secularism and the grip it has over the church and over the city, not because we're in some culture war, but because God is not right or left. He is right in the middle, asking us to pursue him above all else. And there are all kinds of things that are coming after that. And so oftentimes the church's position against secularism is to play defense. Like we've got to defend everything. We've got to defend our book. We've got to defend our beliefs. We've got to defend this idea that we need a savior. And we should be doing that. Those things are worthy of defending. But every now and again, aren't you tired of playing defense? The church, I don't think, is primarily called to play defense. The church is called to play offense. And so if you'll give me a couple minutes for a rant, I just want to say this church, this church specifically, I know we are called to play offense because we're not just going to defend what uh, culture says is wrong with what we're believing. Let's look at the outside world and let's say that, you know what, secularism isn't exactly thriving either. You look at any mental health statistic, addiction, all of those things, those things are on the rise as is it. And here's what the, the, the thing I want to pull out of this is that this church is called, we're called, you're called as a follower of Jesus, not just to play defense, but to play offense and to bring the kingdom into the places that it already is not. And here's why we can do this. And this is going to sound crazy, but hear me out. The reason that we can do this is because this church is a big deal. This church is a really big deal. Now, that might sound a little crazy because we don't have a really big staff. We don't have a massively big budget. We don't even have a big pastor. But this church is a big deal because we're a part of the church. And the church is a really big deal. The church was started 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit filled a room full of hungry people. And the church has been growing, surviving, and thriving in the midst of feast and famine freedom, persecution, provision, and poverty, the church is powerful. 
The church is a big deal. And Jesus said this, and I want to remember, he made this promise. So let's remind him of his promise. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that I'll build my church. I, Jesus, will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a defensive term, and he's saying not even the defense of hell is going to prevail against the church. And so that's why we think that we're going to play offense more than we want to play defense. We're going to go after seeing a city change, and we're praying for that to happen. And we're doing it because, not because we want to win. If we wanted to win, then that would be politics at its worst. We play offense because we truly, authentically believe that the best way to thrive in this world and the next is to live in the presence of Jesus with his family. It's the strategy that he gave us, to follow him and do it together. That's why we want to do that as a church. And so as a, as a church, as city church, we want to play offense because we really believe it's the best strategy to see Cincinnati and the world thrive. So, for God, so love the world. For God, it's a title. It's that man that we're going after. It's the father. Now, a title is different than a name, right? So you carry lots of titles. I carry a few different titles. I, am, I got ordained probably seven or eight years ago, so I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm an American. Um, what else am I? What did you say, Rob? A model? No, I'm, I'm, it's good. I'm, I'm not a model, actually. Um, I'm a Hoosier. I'm a, I'm a husband. You carry all kinds of titles. I carry a lot of titles. God, Theos, our God, Yahweh, carries a few titles as well. And one of them, maybe one of the most prominent that we see throughout Scripture, is a father. And one of the most prominent characteristics of that father is his love. And so that's what we've been doing for this month of June, is leaning in and looking at the father's love. And when we look at the father's love, we realize that God himself is love. Love is the Father. Love is who the Father is. And that love should lead us to exhale. We've been giving that word picture all throughout this series. What if just for one month we wanted to lean in to the love of the Father and, and realize that that should cause us to exhale? That's why we're literally doing breathing every service to remind ourselves that the love of the Father is here and it should cause us to exhale. And I've been asking this question um, every week, and I want to ask it one more time this month. What is preventing you from taking a deep breath? What's preventing you from taking a deep breath in the midst of the Father's love? We want to identify that, and we want to ask the Father to remove it. We've said that his promise is to protect us from it, to provide in the midst of it. Today, we're going to see that he's already sacrificed for it. He has sacrificed for us to have freedom and rest in him. So, we're going to be in the Old Testament a lot for the next few minutes. There's a lot of content here. We're not going to talk about the love of the Father now for a while. Um, a lot of this came from uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers named Mike Erie, and so I wanted to give him a shout out. But here is what I want to remind you of, especially if you're new, and if you're not new, you know where this is going. But we're about to read a lot of different passages that might seem obscure and they might not seem to actually be talking about the Father's love. My promise to you is if you engage with us in the next few minutes, relevance is coming. Now this morning is going to be a little bit different 
because we're going to have about 20 minutes of context and then one minute of relevance, then we're going to worship. So it's a lot of context, but I promise, if you stick with it, if you go through, relevance is? Relevance is coming. Okay, we're going to go to Genesis 12. Are you ready? Rapid fire through the book of Genesis. Genesis 12, this is where about half of my sermons start. This is the Abrahamic covenant where God makes a promise, a covenant, with a man named Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And here's what he says. He says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There are uh, three parts to this covenant. One covenant, three parts. Number one, he said, I'm going to give you land. Number two, I'm going to make you into a nation. Number three, all nations on earth are going to be blessed through you. Now, we're normally on a Sunday talking about the third part of that covenant. It's the last one to come true, and it comes true through Abraham's line in Jesus. All nations were blessed through the line of Abraham. This morning, I want to talk actually about the second part of that covenant. God says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you bless all nations. But right in the middle, he says, and I'm going to make you and your household into a nation, a great nation. Now, the problem with that promise is that Abraham, Abram at the time, is about 75 years old with no kids. His wife is 65. They've been trying. She's barren. She's, they've been struggling with infertility. And now, I mean, she's 65. So this seems a little bit unlikely. It seems a little bit more than unlikely. And so the, the promise is that I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. The problem with that is that a nation needs people. And people come from a person. And there is no person to carry on Abram and Sarai or Abraham and Sarah's lineage. God, this continually comes up over the next nine chapters. God either re-ups on his promise or Abram says, hey, what about that promise? There's even a moment that God says, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen next year. And Sarah laughs at that because it's so ridiculous. It had been years and years and years by that point. She wasn't even 65 anymore. She was probably closer to uh, 89 when she says, look, this ship has sailed. And then in Genesis 21, nine chapters later, it says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. couple things to take note of. It's believed that Abraham was 100 years old at this point, and Sarah, therefore, would have been 90. So this, not only is this a, a couple that struggles with infertility for years and years and years, but they're also way past the age of childbearing. There's a few things I want you to kind of tuck in your memory. The first one is this. Isaac came about through a miraculous birth. This was a miracle. His birth was a miracle. But Abraham and Sarah have a baby, and that's uh, part of the promise, and so everything is good, right? For one chapter. And then we get to Genesis 22, where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So one chapter, there's this son that's been born to them, and then it says sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Uh, now, this is crazy, of course. Um, it's probably less crazy 4,000 years ago 
because child sacrifice was somewhat common for gods to ask their followers to do, gods to ask their followers to do. What's interesting about this is that we're told and we've seen Yahweh, this God, the God, be different than all of the rest of the gods, and yet he's asking the same thing. The key word here, and we could spend a whole week on this, is if you look into the word tested. God tested Abraham. And this wasn't a test like God's hoping that Abraham passes it. This was a test. If you look into the the root of that word, it's to reveal what's already there. Abraham was, or I'm sorry, God was revealing in Abraham what was already there. God knew what was in Abraham. God knew that faith was in Abraham. Abraham probably wasn't quite as sure that that faith was there. So God's revealing to Abraham the faith that he has. And, And subsequently, God is revealing faith that Abraham has to the rest of us. He's testing Abraham, but not in the way that we think of tests. This isn't some petty cosmic joke. God's saying, I know what's in you, and I know what you're going to do, so I'm going to test you. I'm going to reveal to you what I already know to be true of you. And then he says, I want you to go, and I want you to do this in the region of Moriah. Tuck that away as well. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, tuck that one away as well, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go, I and the boy go over there. We will worship, then we will come back to you. Abraham says, and he knows, he's the only one that knows what's about to happen. He says, we're going to go up and we're going to come back. There's a level of faith there that is unfamiliar to a lot of us. We will go up, and I know what I'm supposed to do, and he doesn't know that he's going to be called off of this. I know what I'm going to do, and yet I believe that we will come back. And all throughout the New Testament, they grab onto that moment right there. This was a big moment for the Jewish people. Paul writes about it in Romans 4.3. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The writer of Hebrews says Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and in so uh, of a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, we read that, and we're like, yeah, of course God can raise the dead. My whole faith is built around that. But remember, there has been no resurrection yet. There was, there was no context for Abraham to believe that this is something God would do. He just believed that God could do it. And so that faith, that act of faith right there, Paul says, was credited to to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham took the word for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Uh, a few years ago, Catherine and I and seven other people from our church in Las Vegas took a mission trip to India, and uh, my friends that were here a couple weeks ago, Rich and Amari, Rich led that trip, and so there were nine of us that went. We were all really good friends, and it was one of the most incredible weeks of my life. We saw God do things that I did not even know. He could still do. But it started uh, the first day we got um, into the city that we were at. It started uh, by just the first day they wanted us to walk around and pray and do a prayer walk. Not talk to anybody, not tell anybody about Jesus, not pray for the sick. And so by day two, we were really itching to do something. And so um, the night before, they said, hey, you guys need to get ready. Tomorrow there's a youth conference that you're going to be leading. And this was totally the vibe of this trip. It's like the night before you find out what you're going to do for the entire day. And they said, there's about 100 youth that are going to show up. We need you to lead the conference. 
And so we stayed up all night, I mean, just trying to figure out, and like harnessing our best recess ideas mixed with the best gospel presentations we've heard. And it's like, how can Foursquare be the gospel? How can Jump Row? I mean, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and so we show up the next day, early that morning, and we walked in, and so there's the nine of us, but then our translator showed up as well. His name is Sandeep. And, uh, and we showed up, and we showed up, we thought, to the wrong room because we walked in, and it was just a bunch of adults. And we looked at Sandeep, and we said, hey, where's the youth conference? And he pointed right here. And we said, these, these aren't youth. Most of us were in our mid-20s, and uh, almost everybody in the room was older than us. And he said, oh, no, youth, youth in India means under 50. True story. And uh, I know they say public speaking is one of the like, hardest or things people fear the most. Preaching's pretty easy in a room like this if you have already preached in India through a translator, pivoting everything you're about to say on the fly. I mean, we were like, throw out the jump rope, bring in an old sermon. I mean, it was crazy because, all of this because, and, and you hear this phrase a lot, language matters or words matter. That's true, but I'd like to add to it. Language matters in the context that you're speaking in. And so when they said youth, we thought we knew what they meant. When they said youth, they knew that it's just anybody under 50. If you're under 50, that's youth. Don't you wish you lived in India? But the same thing is true, actually, in the Hebrew language. When they say boy, they don't mean boy like we mean it. A boy could be anything from a small child into someone in their mid-30s. And so it says that or Abraham said that me and the boy are going to go up there, but most Jewish rabbis don't believe that this is a five-year-old boy, but this is probably a 15 to 25-year-old boy because the boy would have still meant that. And part of the reason that we believe that is because um, there were two main things that had to be carried. One was the fire, which wasn't actually a flame. It was just a rock of flint. And then the other one was all of the wood to build an altar to make a sacrifice. And we see that this boy is big enough and strong enough to carry all the wood for a sacrifice. We picture this as some small boy being tied up, but actually what likely was the scenario is a man allowing himself to be bound. Let's tuck that away as well. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, or more than likely, Isaac allowed himself to be bound, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know, now it has been revealed that you fear God because you have not withheld from me, notice the language, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
The Lord will provide. And that's the first time that we see the, the name that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Abraham said, I'm going to name this mountain. The Lord will provide. But then something interesting is said right after that. The writer of Genesis say, is saying, that's what Abraham named it. But actually now what we know it as is on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I thought it was provided because Abraham had his son there and then there's a ram caught in the thicket. But yet the writer of Genesis says, no, 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 it's, it's on this mountain that it will be provided. So let's recap. There is Isaac who has a miraculous birth. He's described as Abraham's only son whom you love. Abraham, the father, is commanded to sacrifice him, and they go up, and then on the third day, they get to the place that they were going, and then Abraham and his son say, we will go up, and we will come back. Isaac carried the wood of his own sacrifice. He carried the actual um, weapon or the tool that was going to be used for his sacrifice himself. And then it's said that God will provide the sacrifice, and then God did provide what God demanded. Now, no need to say it out loud. But who's this remind you of? Is there something more than just an old Jewish story about a guy that was willing to sacrifice his son here? We're almost there. You guys got time for like five more minutes? Okay. It's like three of us are. So for you three, here we go. Remember Mariah? Mariah. Second Chronicles 3.1. This is about a thousand years later. It says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on... Mount Moriah, that's interesting. So we know where modern-day Mount Moriah is because we know where the temple was. It's in Jerusalem, and it's this large mountain that's leading up to a place, and on the highest point of that place, Solomon and then later on Herod built the temple. Now, this mount is the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's, if you've been there, you can see it's like a big slope all over, and at the top is where the temple was built. On the top is where we presume Abraham would have been willing to sacrifice his son. Now, before I jump into this next part of a little bit of geography, um, I want you to think about how close a 16-minute walk is. If you walk for 16 minutes, you don't go to a different city. You actually probably don't even leave the neighborhood. If you've been a part of this church for a while, you remember we used to meet in the Shakespeare Theater. The Shakespeare Theater is a 16-minute walk from here. So you can walk 16 minutes, and you're not even out of Cincinnati, or you're also not out of Over the Rhine. You're still in the same neighborhood. So 16-minute walk, very close. If you go to where that temple was, where the top of Mount Moriah is, and you walk 16 minutes southwest, what you're going to find is an old ruin of Caiaphas's house. And Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus was alive, and he was, it was the place, that house was the place that Jesus was unfairly tried in the middle of night. If you walk 16 minutes to the west of the top of Mount Moriah, you find Herod's Praetorium which would have been the place that when Pilate came to visit, he would have stayed, and it would have been the same place that he would have issued the judgment against Jesus for him to be crucified, a mere 16 minutes from Moriah. And then if you walk eight minutes, just eight minutes northwest of the top of Moriah, still very much on the hill of ancient Moriah, you'll find another smaller cliff, and if you look at the side of that cliff, and maybe some of you have seen it there, you'll see what seems to be a skull. And that, on the top of that cliff, just eight, min eight minutes walk, is where they believe that Jesus was crucified. On Moriah. Eight minutes from that same place 
that the mountain was named, the Lord will provide. But later it was called, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And on the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. Isn't the Bible awesome? The Bible's so cool. It's almost like it's not a bunch of little stories pointing to a bunch of different lessons. It is one story about one person, and it's not you and it's not me. And the Bible's leading us into this incredible adventure of seeing that Jesus came so that we could be set free. The, the, the Father, 2,000 years ago, provided once and for all on Mount Moriah. Now, there's just one more piece, and this is the most important, and then we'll have relevance. Um, if you're a Bible scholar, aspiring Bible scholar, as I know we all are, um, there is a principle or a tool that you use when you're interpreting the Bible, and it's called the principle of first mention. Now, I'm going to read what this is. Hone in. We're almost there. This is what most scholars use in how they define deep theological terms. The law of first mention says that to understand a particular word or doctrine, we must find the place in Scripture that word or doctrine is revealed and study that passage. The reasoning is that the Bible's first mention of a concept is the simplest and clearest presentation. Doctrines are then more fully developed on that foundation. So, to fully understand an important and complex theological concept, Bible students are advised to start with its first mention. And so what they say is if there's a really deep or important or a complex theological idea, you should start to define it by the first time that word or that concept is mentioned. So let's talk about the most important and the most complex of them all, love. In the Hebrew, the word is ahava. Incredibly complex. Ahava, love is a feeling according to Jeremiah 31.3. I have ahavad you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. But also love is an action. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. Deuteronomy 4.37, because of his ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. If you then shift to the New Testament, the same theme is woven in there. Instead of a Hebrew word, it's now Greek, it's agape. 1 John 4.19 says, he, we love because he first loved us. Agape, ahava. And so love is potentially the most complex, most important theme that's woven all throughout Scripture from beginning to the end. And the challenge, of course, is how do we define this? How do we define such an undefinable quality? And the Bible scholars among us would say, well, of course, we should go to the principle of first mention, right? How was it defined? How was it shown the first time that that word was used? And so let's do that. Let's go to the first time that the word love or ahava was mentioned. It's actually a verse we've already read. It's Genesis 22, when God says this, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Whom you ahava. And so the first mention of love that we see in Scripture is not a description with words, but it's a picture of a father that's willing to sacrifice his son. That is where we start the process of understanding what love is. That is the relevance of all of the passages and the stories of Abraham and Solomon leading up to a point where finally on that same mountain it was provided. 
just like it was named. And so the grid, the context with which we start to define love, is not out there, it's not in here even, it's here. Where there was a father that had such deep love that he was willing to sacrifice his son. Take your son, your only son, whom you ahava. This morning, what is preventing you from taking a deep breath? The love of the Father is after you. It was provided. It is finished. And because of that sacrifice, we have access to rest in him. His love isn't just providing, it's not just protecting, but it's sacrificial. The most radical, scandalous part of the love of the Father is that he sacrificed his own son for us. So with that, I want to read two more passages. Relevance is here, and now we're going to worship in light of the love of the Father. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. For God so loved the world. It's where we started. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you've not lived into the so that of that love, there's nothing else that you need to do today. Run literally or emotionally to the Father so that you may have everlasting life. He didn't sacrifice his son just so there's a cool Bible moment on a Sunday morning. He didn't sacrifice his son just so that we can retell the story and feel good about ourselves. He sacrificed his son so that we might have everlasting life. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. This is the picture of God's love. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.